dreamed I was in a Zen Buddhist monk's habit back in Gethsemane. <laughs> we are actually not dreaming of that, but we're back to reading. That now we're up to no the month of November 1968 in the journals of Thomas Merton. <laughs> and here we are. We're living his life through his books as we're, we're in solitude with his book in New York. November 5th, 1968. Last night I dreamed that I was temporarily back at Gethsemane. I was dressed in a Buddhist monk's habit, but with more black and red and gold. A Zen habit in color, more Tibetan than Zen. Oh, got mixed up. What? I dreamed I was back reading the journals of Thomas Merton. Huh? You think he'll reincarnate as a Zen Buddhist monk on the next carnation, like in Japan or Tibet? Or I hope he may not reincarnate. Will he reincarnate? Will he... What's going to happen to him? Was he going to go back to, to Gethsemane as a Buddhist monk? I was going to tell Brother Donald, the cook in the diet kitchen, that I would be there for supper. I met some woman in the corridor, visitors and students of Asian religion, to whom I was explaining. I was a kind of Zen monk and Kalupa, G-E-L-U-G-P-A, together. When I woke up, it was 6 a.m., time to get up. See, it's time to get up at 6 a.m. Huh. So he's now dreaming of being a Zen monk. Huh? But he had said he wanted to go, he had said he wanted to go to find solitude in Alaska and go to Japan like uh, in the prior reading. So he wanted to go to Japan, he wants to be a Zen monk. Why doesn't he? He already is a Zen monk. <laughs> Do you think we're dreaming of being Zen monks by reading this? Do you like the colors of black and red and gold? <laughs> That's more Tibetan. Other recent dreams dimly remembered strange towns, towns in the south of France, working my way along the Riviera. We have that same dream of going to the Riviera. Mm -hmm. How to get to the next place? I forget what the problem is or if it is solved. Another, I am in some town and have a small silvery toy balloon, but it has a dangerous explosive gas in it. I throw it in the air and hope it will float completely away before anything happens. It rises too slowly, departs too slowly, but nothing happens. The dream changes. Can you interpret the dreams? Mm -hmm. He thinks probably he has something dangerous in his hands with all that knowledge he's getting. Mm. And it may explode more Will becoming a Buddhist. Catholic Church. The Catholic Church is going to... Explode if they hear about this. <laughs> November 6, 1968. Second audience with the Dalai Lama. Okay, wow. Well, if you're seeing the Dalai Lama, I mean, why wouldn't you have a dream about 
there's another dream now, the second couple. Yeah, when you have a dream of being a Buddhist monk, that's... Yeah, but he's uh, half uh, part of him... Uh, he's seeing the Dalai Lama. <laughs> it's, it's tough when you... Something what? pulls you away, you know, when you pull yourself into... He's, into two, that's very dangerous. But he studies comparative religion. It's, why is it tough when you just... Back then, you know, back then, you know, he's, I mean, he's like a monk. He's a representative of... I mean, I study comparative religions. I'm not torn apart and don't you're blow not, up. You're uh-huh. not officially... Uh, <laughs> so you're still free, and I... <laughs> We do all subsets, study of religion with equal, equal time. Just, uh, all subsets. They take mm-hmm. you out of the source if they don't agree with... Well, we're freelancers, I guess. We're not in the church, I guess, so. We're freelance, freelance mystics and freelance compare studies of comparative religion. Second audience with the Dalai Lama. We drove up early at 8.30... A bright, clear morning. More people and more trucks on the road. Army trucks roaring towards the corners. Ambling buffalo. Students on their way to school. And the Jubilee bus company, Silver Dragons. At the entry to the Dalai Lama's residence, there were pilgrims, maybe sadakas, with marigolds on their hats or in their hair. Most of the audience was taken up with a discussion of epistemology, then of samadhi. Huh. Alexa, what's the definition of the word epistemology? Come on, it's episteme, it's science. Epistemology is usually defined as a branch of philosophy that investigates the origin, nature, methods, and limits of human knowledge. That's correct. Alexa, what's the definition of the word samadhi? As a pronoun, somebody is usually defined wow. as some person. Well, as a noun, Alexa, stop. Alexa, stop. Most of the audience was taken up with the discussion of epistemology, then of samadhi. In other words, the mind. The mind. That's a big issue in Buddhism. Remember, he was studying mindfulness in a way. He had been in Bangkok. They have more... Of Satipatthana <coughs> Buddhism meditation, the mind. See, there's a lot of uh, psychology in Buddhism when they talk about the mind. Yeah. In Buddhism, you can learn a lot about the mind. A lot of it, at first, was rather scholastic, starting with sunyata, S-U-N-Y-A-T-A, and the empirical existence of things known, the practical empirical existence of things grounded in sunyata, enhanced rather than lessened in a way. I tried to bring in something about sila, S-I-L-A, freedom, grace, gift, but Denzin Geshe had some difficulty translating what I meant. Hmm. We don't even know what sila is. Do you know? Alexa, what's the definition of the word S-I-L-A? Alexa, 
What's the definition of the word S-I-L-A? In Latin America, the name Silas means man of the forest. In England, the name Silas is a variant of Silvanus oh. from the Greek name meaning forest, woods. No, oh, she doesn't know either. No one knows. <laughs> he couldn't translate it. Alexa couldn't translate it. Never mind. S-I-L-A. He says it means freedom, grace. It says it means freedom and grace. Then we discuss various theories of knowledge, Tibetan, Western, Thomas, Thomas, Thomas Merton, Thomas Western, Thomas Aquinas. There is a controversy among Tibetans as to whether in order to know something, one must know the word for it as well as apprehend the concept. Can you know something without the word for it? Hmm. Hmm. So, Children know things without the words. They know what they see and what they think. So you are in a certain branch of epistemology. <laughs> We got back to the question of meditation and samadhi. That's the one big thing we cover, right? Mm. That's a big question. That's the biggest question. We get back to the question of meditation and samadhi. Those are the two big issues. Uh-huh. Is that what their specialty is? I said it was important for monks in the world to be living examples of the freedom and transformation of consciousness that meditation can give. I said that. He said it. Merton said it was important for monks in the world to be living examples of the freedom and transformation of consciousness that meditation can give. They should be living examples They shouldn't just be monks. They should be living examples of the transformation of consciousness that meditation can give. Are you that, in a way? Are you in a living example? Very good. You are transformed consciousness. You are so transformed now that you're listening to this book with attention, with your heart. The Dalai Lama then talked about samadhi in the sense of controlled concentration. Well, okay. Why don't you open your window? Dear, so samadhi, you can have it in the sense of controlled concentration. Well, samadhi can just sort of happen at random, right? But what about a samadhi where it's a sense of controlled concentration? By controlled. Can you control it? Can you go into samadhi daily, or twice a day, or three times, or four times, like, or five uh, times? Meditation is controlled. Every day, samadhi? Meditation. So if you go into meditation, but you enter into samadhi in meditation, and you have controlled concentration? Hmm. I believe in all the time samadhi, similar to instant on third eye. Hmm. He demonstrated the sitting position for meditation that he said was essential. Wow, that's probably true. 
the position does matter. He demonstrated the sitting position for meditation that he said was essential. You should sit up with your back straight, cross-legged, like Buddha. Sit like Buddha. God, don't sit in a chair. It's horrible. He demonstrated the sitting position for meditation that he said was essential in the Tibetan meditation posture. The right hand discipline is about the left wisdom. In Zen, it is the other way around. Then we got on to concentrating on the mind. <clears throat> other objects of concentration may be an object, an image, a name. But how does one concentrate on the mind itself? <laughs> There is division. The I who concentrates, the mind as object of a concentration, observing the concentration, all three, one mind. He is very existential, I think, about the mind as, quote, what is concentrated on. That's uh, very con complicated. See how confusing that is? It says, but how does one concentrate on the mind itself? How do you? He says, there is division. The I who concentrates, the mind as object of concentration, observing the concentration, all three, one mind, he is very essential. I think about the mind as, quote, what is concentrated on. You understood nothing. <laughs> <laughs> well, Too many words, it doesn't make sense. You know what the main mind is. Like. <clears throat> to stop thinking I don't concentrate it on the mind. I, I concentrate on just the sitting position. <laughs> See, to me, the meditation is a sitting position. One point. And then the mind is no mind at all, just a sitting position. You could just be somebody sitting in meditation like a dead tree log. <laughs> don't then, you concentrate on the third eye, on a mm. single point? Yeah, but without the mind. <laughs> <laughs> but there's nobody there to. How could I concentrate when I have no eye and the eye disappeared <laughs> in annihilation? <laughs> well, <laughs> I assume that I can't meditate. I just sit there like some dead tree log, like some lump of. A lump sitting in a lotus position. <laughs> I assume I can't meditate. Concentrate. I can't meditate. So I just sit there and pretend like I can. It's interesting. You still do it. No, I just do emulation. I like. I want to look like I'm Buddha, and I sit there and I take pictures of me looking like Buddha, and then post them to Instagram and say that I meditate. You look uh, like that fat Buddha with the big stomach. And then I eat a lot of brownies and get fat. And due to all the food that I'm eating, I can't concentrate. <laughs> but I can concentrate long enough to post a picture of me meditating. So all I focus on is the sitting position. <laughs> he demonstrated the sitting position for meditation that he said was essential. In the Tibetan meditation posture, the right hand is above the left. Right hand's above the left. In Zen, it is the other way around. The uh, 
The left is above the right. Then we got on to concentrating on the mind. Other objects of concentration may be an object and image and name. But how does one concentrate on the mind itself? There is division in the eye who concentrates the mind as object of concentration, observing the concentration, all three, one mind. He was very existential. I think about the mind as what is concentrated on. It was a very lively conversation, and I think we all enjoyed it. <laughs> Are you enjoying this reading? Is it lively? Mm -hmm. uh. She got more confused, I guess. So I at least admitted that I can't meditate, and I just <coughs> make the appearance of my actual feet meditate <laughs> by the sitting position. <laughs> My feet meditate, but my mind doesn't. <laughs> I was a very lively conversation, and I think we all enjoyed it. He certainly seemed to. God, you make a lot of noise. <laughs> I like the sol sol solidity of the Dalai Lama's ideas. He is a very con con consecutive thinker. Con consecutive thinker and moves from step to step. His ideas of the interior life are built on a very solid foundations and on a real awareness of practical problems. He insists on detachment. I'm just going to completely detach from this. At some point I'm going to detach from this reading itself and go, go outside and just concentrate it on my feet running through the park. He insists on detachment, on underworldly life. So I have to detach from these brownies and coffee and go out and play tennis. <laughs> he insists on detachment, on unworldly life, yet he sees it as a way to complete understanding of and participation in the problems of life and the world. But renunciation and detachment must come first. Oh, well, we say we need the sitting position and detachment. And don't even think about the mind. Maybe you can get detached from it. <laughs> Just detach from your mind. <laughs> Must come first. Eventually, he misses the full monastic life and wished he himself had more time to meditate and study. And at the end, he invited us back again Friday to talk about Western monasticism and meanwhile think more about the mind, he said as we left him. Wow. That's a meeting with the Dalai Lama. <laughs> uh, hmm. I'm going to have to detach from this reading and come back to it. <laughs> What? One second. I have to go into the standing. I already did the sitting position. Now I have to do the running position. The walking yoga. Did you like the walking yoga? Do your feet feel better? You know how your feet... Didn't he say that your feet can feel like they're just a hand? Like, they feel like your hand once you've completed walking yoga? Hmm. Hmm. 
we're stopping. That was just, we read from November 6, 1968, the second audience with the Dalai Lama. And we read November 5th, uh, when he dreamed he was a Buddhist monk. Uh, We're continuing with Thomas Merton's journals and uh, Thomas Merton's uh, trip uh, trip to basically India. To you just saw this Dalai Lama, Dharamsala. <laughs> he was becoming a Buddhist. <laughs> November seventh, nineteen sixty-eight. The contemplative life must provide an area, a space of liberty, of silence, in which possibilities are allowed to surface and new choices beyond routine choice become manifest. You think you should have that, a space of liberty and of silence? Mm -hmm. It does. In which new, in which possibilities are allowed to surface. Uh -huh. Where we open to new possibilities and new choices. Contemplative uh -huh. life. That's why we're trying to get that small room available for for uh, reading and cool no, contemplation. Mm -hmm. well, you may go sometime, but you're not making it. Not all the time, just temporary. When it's too hot in the summer. <clears throat> it should create a new experience of time, not as stopgap stillness, but as, here's a French word, temps, temps ver, verge, ver, verge, tem is T-E-M-P-S, V-I-E-R-G-E, temps verge. You couldn't pronounce it. Huh. You create a new experience of time, not as stopgap stillness, but as. Oh, come. What? Ver, ver, this hmm. is time. Time? Time what? Verge. 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 Like time what? Virgin. Virgin. Virgin time. <laughs> Virgin? Virgin time. Vierja, not a blank to be filled, or an untouched space to be conquered or inviolated, but a space that can enjoy its own potentialities and hopes, its own presence to itself, one's own time, but not dominated by one's own ego, its demands, hence open to others, compassionate time, rooted in the sense of common illusion and in criticism of it. I don't know what he means. <laughs> you know? Do you know? Space of Liberty. I had a fine visit with Trobich Tichin Ropachi, a lama, mystic, and poet of the Sakyapa school, one of the best so far. That's C-H-O-B-G-Y-E-T-H-I-C-C-E-N. Hmm. Sonan, Sonan, says Tro, 
Chobachi Tichen is very advanced in Tantrism and a great mystic. Hmm. He could be a great mystic and a poet. Hmm. Seems any great mystic is pretty much a poet. <laughs> Do you become a poet if you're a great mystic? Or does a poet become great mystics? He even knows how to impart the technique of severing yeah. one's soul from the body. Hmm. Something that exalts you so much. So, to, what is a great to, mystic, though? Tends you to... Well, some great mystic is somebody who has great advances in spirituality. Says he even knows how to impart the technique of severing one's soul from the body. He knows how to teach that. It's one thing to sever your soul from the body, but to then impart the technique. He taught this to another Lama, who was later captured by the communist. Huh. Do you think the communists want to know how to do that? That's a very strange thing. Well, people, no, they, they were against the religion, so they don't want anything that will... You you sort of wonder does the does the military want to know how to sever one soul from the body? They don't. The military. <laughs> you do that that means you do not kill and all those things, mm. and uh, into killing. That's a strange thing. He taught this to another Lama who was later captured by the communists. The Lama, when he was being led off to prison camp, simply severed soul from body. Poof, and that was the end of it. Liberation. You think he just killed him, died. He severed his soul from the body and disappeared. They talked about samadhi, beginning with concentration on an object, then going beyond that to meditation without object and without concept. Uh, I don't see, I don't know if you're going to go to Dharam, so... Uh, I'm just going to read Tibetan Buddhist books from, uh, the, what's the guy? Uh, I don't know if you like to try that. What's the guy's name that's from Columbia? His daughter is an actress. Uh -huh. hmm. You could read his books uh, and not go to Dharamsala. Mm -hmm. Hmm. Uh. <sighs> we talked about samadhi, beginning with concentration on an object, then going beyond that to meditation without object and without concept. I ask a lot of questions about bodhicitta, maitriya, and karuna, bodhicitta. Teachin said, quote, is the most fundamental of these three concepts, which all center on love and compassion, unquote. He spoke of three kinds of bodhicitta, one kingly, in which one seeks spiritual power to save oneself and then save others. Two, that of a boatman, in which one ferries oneself together with others to salvation. And three, that of shepherd, in which one goes behind all the others and enters salvation last. And this is the most perfect. Oh my God, I could never do that. <laughs> never do it. <laughs>
Joby 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 Dechen, C H O B G Y E, T H I C Z E N E N. Quoted something from the founder of the Sakyapa school, the S A K Y A P A school. Then went more or less like this. That went more or less like this. Quote. If you are attached to worldly things, you are not a religious man. If you are attached to appearances, you cannot meditate. If you are attached to your own soul, you cannot have bodhicitta, bodhicitta. If you are attached to doctrines, you cannot reach highest attainment. Hmm. That seems pretty much true, I guess, but... This guy who says, if you are attached to worldly things, you are not a religious man. If you are attached to appearances, you cannot meditate. If you are attached to your own soul, you cannot have bodhicitta. If you are attached to doctrines, you cannot reach highest attainment. Hmm. So we can't attach to this book. We have to let go of it when we're done reading it. We have to give it back to the library and say goodbye and just listen to the podcast again. We can't be attached to the journals of Thomas Mert. He asked me to give an outline of Christian meditation and mysticism, which I did. He seemed very pleased and wrote a poem for me. I wrote one for him. He also spoke of the need for per- good interpreters. Sonan Kazi being the best. <laughs> On the way down, we met the Gadong Oracle, an old lama, and a former member of the Tibetan cabinet, an old man with a big brown beard, who had also formed part of a delegation that went to look for and identify the present Dalai Lama as a child. You know how that works where they find the Dalai Lama? I saw a movie. The Dalai Lama's proper name is Gijong Dinjinzen Gyatso. His proper name is G-E-S-O-N-G-T-E-N-Z-I-N-G-Y-A-T-Z-S-O. Do you think the Communist Party will approve of this podcast? Or does it matter whether they approve it? There's no communist party anymore. Everyone is tired of the Communist Party and they're sick and tired of it. They're sick and tired of it. We're bored with communism. They just get bored with trends, basically. The world turns around trendism. Trendiness. I'm tired with communism. Mm-hmm. You never had it. I never had it. <laughs> but the world is tired of it. <laughs> so they'll just become bored with it and abandon it <laughs> through the long process of boredom. <laughs> My theory is you didn't need wars, but things just change eventually because people are bored with them. <laughs> right? You didn't have to go to war with Iraq because Saddam Hussein was eventually going to die anyways. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Instead of going to war, you can have patience, just like the Dalai Lama is having patience. He's now patient with China. He's been very patient. <laughs> Don't you think he's been patient with China? <laughs> That's just an excuse. It's like it would be nice if they could keep Tibetan culture intact and not mess with it. They should let people have their own individual cultures for the benefit of society and mankind. But look what happened. like one earthly culture. Now we've all just become. Everything is just exactly the same. Should we all just become westernized Americans and eat at McDonald's? And, hmm. Why don't we just get... Why don't we just read what Amazon sends to my Kindle and nothing else? The only thing we don't have now maybe well, we can't be attached to not being communist. We can't be attached to anything. We can't be attached to this book. So we have to give it back to the library. After lockdown ends, we're locked into the book currently, but eventually lockdown will end. Uh, mm -hmm. Higher and higher things. Yeah, we're still mildly attached to reading this book. Well, this doesn't really affect communist China that much, really. It's a book about Thomas Merton. China is not exactly it's not, this book is not about that much about Buddhism until the end. They don't even know themselves, China. You, the best way to study China would be just chaotic, chaos systems, chaos theory. The best way to study politics and government is chaos theory. Uh -huh. <clears throat> November 8, 1968, my third interview with the Dalai Lama. He got a third interview. See, he's quite important to get a third interview with the Dalai Lama. He's a famous American writer. Do you know his book, The Seven Story Mountain, was a, sold quite a few copies? Uh, look how important mm. he is. I mean, he. Mm. Reinforced all those Eastern uh, uh, Buddhist uh, Buddhist uh, method uh, mm -hmm. beliefs, etc. <coughs> so he brought a lot. Uh, mm -hmm. 
And he's also hop, popular with young hippies and young people at the time. He's popular with people yeah. like me as a college he student. He advertised. Uh, he's he's uh, he's getting into Zen Buddhism, and he's and, uh, he's very knowledgeable. Mm. He writes, so he's the best to, to write about and to have followers. And he's a good writer as well. Uh, and I could identify with all his weaknesses, like he's my. He's more important than a politician. All my. Uh, politician. I was easily affected. <laughs> my third interview with the Dalai Lama was, in some ways, the best. Wow. He asked a lot of questions about Western monastic life particularly the vows, the rule of silence, the ascetic way, etc. But what concerned him most was, number one, did the vows have any connection with the spiritual transmission or initiation? Two, having made vows, did the monks continue to progress along a spiritual way towards an eventual illumination, and what were the degrees of that progress? Supposing a monk died without having attained to perfect illumination, what ascetic methods were used to help purify the mind of passions? He is interested in the mystical life rather than in external observances. Some incidental questions. What were the motives for the monks not eating meat? Apparently, Gethsemane, I think, did not eat meat there. Yeah. <coughs> that's but why... He was, uh, he was telling me he was eating hen, with... Uh, yeah, that's with why, uh, like, Emma. my friend, you know, was, was interested in sin and meditating and... And he goes down there, they're sitting in meditation, they're not eating meat. It's like, it's like a perfect place to hang out for... No, even in Greece, I know they uh-huh. eat meat, but they have a lot uh-huh. of fastings, you know. Mm. They eat meat at seven days, and uh-huh. most of the time they don't. So they have a lot of fasting days, but they're not... Uh, some don't, uh, but that's voluntary. Like, some priests will abstain from meat. What were the motives for the monks not eating meat? Did they drink alcoholic beverages? Did they have movies and so on? Did they drink beer and eat meat? Alcoholic beverages is like wine and stuff. Now, did they or didn't they? Remember, he had some wine back then. He had wine. He had meat? Well, maybe they occasionally did. Maybe they. Maybe they occasionally had wine. I, I don't know that they did all the time, but. What? They think so? They think of wine the same wine as in the Bible. Let's see what he says, and so on. I asked him about the question of Marxism and monasticism, which is to be the topic of my Bangkok lecture. 
He said that from a certain point of view, it is it was impossible for monks and communists to get along, but that perhaps it should not be entirely impossible if Marxism meant only the establishment of an equitable economic and social structure. You see, uh, to some degree, the, the uh, Dalai Lama is a Marxist in a way. Why? Well... The Mar he's not well, I mean, I don't see how it could be a Marxist and get and he he's threatened by the communist. <laughs> well and, you know, I don't know. It's funny, our masters never say anything about political structures like they don't say they condone communism. <laughs> Or Marxism, Marxism. Yeah, but uh, mm. what uh, mm. the mysticism does, it is totally private, so nobody can fight against that. What can they do? Can but. they watch you twenty-four-seven? Watch you. Well, let's see. There was perhaps some truth in Marx's critique of religion, in view of the fact that religious leaders had so consistently been hand-in-glove with secular power. It's interesting, like, when you read the, I read the foundation book, The History of England, they were so hand-in-glove with secular power. They had so much power as well. They had lands and taxes, and they owned these, they Either the church or the king owned all the land, or the nobles, and they, 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 even themselves. Don't you see how they dress off mm. uh, with all the mm. uh, precious metals of the corons of the <laughs> yeah. So many ornaments on. Uh, That's organized religion. They the, uh, mm. the way they dress at special holidays. Mm. Like a million dollars. A million dollar priest. Mm -hmm. Well, they had quite a... Golden precious stones. Uh, if you see those years in, uh, in, in the end, uh, years before communism in Russia, uh, mm -hmm. and uh, in Constantinople, there is a church, St. George. It is the, all the walls, mm -hmm. everything was all in gold, crafted in gold. Gold. Where was this one in gold? Uh, Constantinople. all in gold? Well, well dear, they still now, even now, they still, they'll coat Buddha with gold sometimes. And so they, they do it in <coughs> honor of God, but, but still it doesn't uh, mm. make sense in a way. It still shows that that's what you gold, and it still is polluting to the environment to extract gold. Here's what he says that Marx's critique, I, I just don't think that, I think the Marx's critique is useful to Stern, but not Marxism, but Marx, Marx's critique. There is a perhaps some truth in Marx's critique of religion in view of the fact that religious leaders had so consistently been hand in glove with secular power. Still, on the other hand, <clears throat> militant as atheism did, in fact, strive to suppress all forms of religion, good or bad. 
So militant atheism ain't much better. <laughs> it's not going to be. Militant atheism could be like, you know, Stalinism or something. Goodness. Yeah, communism. Finally, we got into a rather technical... Sometimes not, because in Greece we have dictatorship that you have in different countries, uh, they don't touch the, the church, etc. Yeah, well, they, they could, some of them don't like religion. And, uh, they may change a few things, but they don't. <clears throat> Finally, we got into a rather technical discussion of mind, whether as consciousness, prajna or dhyana, or, and the relation of prajna to sunyata. In the abstract, prajna and sunyata can be considered from a dialectic viewpoint, but not when prajna is seen as realization. The greatest error is to become attached to sunyata as if it were an object and, quote, absolute truth, unquote. It was a very warm and cordial discussion, and at the end I felt we had become very good friends and were somehow quite close to each other. I feel a great respect and fondness for him as a person and believe, too, that there is a real spiritual bond between us. He remarked that I was a, quote, Catholic Geshe, <laughs> which Harold said was the highest possible praise from a galupa like an honorary doctorate. He's got his honorary doctorate in Buddhism. <laughs> cool. <laughs> He's a Catholic Geshe. G-E-S-H-E. -S -E. Hmm. Hmm. That's pretty good. I think the religious hmm. leaders went along very well with the kings in the past when there were kings because they were like kings for the the church and the king was king for the outside the church in a way. So they both were kings Remember, we're reading this book. We're reading this book just as a fulfillment of my unfulfilled desires. And my one of my desires was to go to Darjeeling and get some tea. <laughs> so now we're going in the abstract within the journals of Thomas Merton to Darjeeling, India. November 12, 1968. This is a fi much finer place than I expected. A king of places, full of Tibetans, prayer flags high in mist, wonderful mountains, all hidden as we came up the wretched road along which there have been some seventy bad, very bad landslides. We were held up an hour in Gursana, Gursayan, waiting for the worst stretch to open up again. Let me explain what Darjeeling is, dear. It's like a city up in the Himalayas, near the mountains. You know, remember when the British were in India? They would have very hot summer, so naturally the British would run up to their mountain resorts. And so a place like Darjeeling is like a place where the British went in the summer. And then they had their tea plantation. And the British also stole tea plants from China and then started planting tea in India. And then the British had to have their tea. Always have to have their tea. In the afternoon, of course. And I have to have my Darjeeling tea as well. <laughs> so, 
But I'm drinking currently Earl Grey. I'm drinking Earl Grey, which is similar to Darjeeling, but not the same. But he said, This is a much finer place than I expected. <laughs> yeah, you would like, uh, like the mountain areas, especially if it's too hot in India. From the plane which we took from Calcutta to Bagdogra, all the high mountains were visible above the clouds. Kanchenjunga, nearest Everest, several hundred miles away. So I suppose you could see Everest. Tall with a black side, stately mountain. It has a black side. It's tall with a black side. And the lovely pointed one next to it, directly below, it might have been Indiana as well as India. We went over the Ganges. The ride from Bagdogra was long, through thick woods, then higher and higher into the clouds. Finally, we came to the Windermere Hotel, the most pleasant place I have been to in India. We arrived up a long flight of steps, out of breath, in the dark, had tea, it was cold. You see, you want to end up at a nice British hotel. The bottom line is you can, you can brag about how you want to go to India and find enlightenment, but really what you want is to just remain an Englishman <laughs> and have tea in a fine hotel. Is that not true? Would you be running to a British hotel <laughs> for tea? <laughs> I don't know. Well, when I went to India, I, I would oscillate between going into the countryside with the peasants and, and then I would run to the fine British hotel. <laughs> Take a break. So, <clears throat> we have to stop, probably. Huh? Hmm. We, we got to see Mount Everest. We went to Darjeeling. We got to see the Dalai Lama. <clears throat> we got to discuss communism versus Marxism. We discussed eating meat and not eating and drinking beer and drinking wine. And we discussed... Uh, what? Uh, it doesn't interest me that much. And we... So, what else do we do on this trip? We basically want to see the Dalai Lama. <laughs> and had some tea. Huh?